Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. So I, I walk in after first service and there's a Snickers bar next to my Bible. And so I don't know if somebody's like laced this, I'm afraid to eat it, or if I'm just not myself when I'm hungry and preaching could be really scary then. So this could be our last Sunday together. We'll see. Because I mean, laced or not, that's a Snickers bar, right? It'll, it'll be good for the two minutes it takes me to, yeah, two minutes, a minute to eat it. So we are in Revelation chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. And if you remember, as we've been talking, we're in this uh, kind of portion of scripture where these are all parenthetical chapters uh, all the way into 14, which means in this seven-year tribulation period, uh, John has just kind of paused the chronology of the story and he wants to fill in a bunch of details. Some things that have happened, and as we'll see, some things that will happen. So he's just filling in details of this seven-year period of what is going on. And I'll be honest, the next uh, couple weeks, we're gonna geek out pretty massively, and so if you need to like start carbo-loading, eat some brain food, uh, I've always heard peanut butter and honey is a really good brain food. Like, obviously, you can tell this doesn't know much about health food, right? So if you want to start co- carbo-loading, getting ready for that. Um, but the next two will be pretty thick because there's just so many of these details that we want to bring together and just show the fullness of God's story through his word and what he's doing in this time period. So if you, again, have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my to my I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. There are the, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. I know all of us are right now like, Lord, are you calling me to be one of those witnesses? That I could breathe fire out on my enemies? Verse seven, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and the languages and the nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's gonna be like Christmas. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. 
But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. I texted one of my friends this morning. He's a pastor in Kansas. The second song that we sang uh, is one of his favorites. And so as the worship team was kind of rehearsing it this morning, I was like, oh, I was thinking of Kale. So I sent him a text and just said, hey, praying for you this morning. Uh, you know, obviously under understanding leading a church, especially on a Sunday morning, can be a little difficult. Things go wrong. Mics backfire and all that. And he said, hey, I appreciate that. I'm in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1 where are you at? I said, Revelation 11, the two witnesses, you know, just that sermon I have in my back pocket, just in any case, you know, just a nice easy day in the pulpit. And he just started laughing. And I said, but this is us. This is what we do. We walk chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book. And so we see John hearing from someone, probably God in heaven, he's being told, could be possibly an angel that's carrying out that same authority, but he was given a measuring rod and he was told to get up and measure the temple. And it's very reminiscent of what Zechariah went through. He was told to do these same things. So if you look at Zechariah chapter two, one to three. And there's a sense that measuring the temple like that is showing ownership. And so God is saying, hey, go and measure my temple, because we, we know and understand that God has use for this, that this temple on earth that does not exist right now, that is going to be rebuilt, that God has plans for this. And so this temple, it has to be on earth for the fulfillment of Daniel. If you remember Daniel chapter 9, starting around like verse 26 or so, we know that the Antichrist is going to sign a covenant with the Jews. That's the singular event that starts the seven-year tribulation. And he's going to sign that covenant in the Jews because it's going to be a covenant of peace. And so the Jews are going to be allowed to rebuild their temple and start their sacrificial system up. And, and honestly, we're excited about that because we see things even now today that are happening, that are moving in that direction. There's a whole website that is dedicated to the third temple, that there is a group of people Jewish in their heritage 
that want to see this temple built. There's even archaeologists that are looking at the area and wondering, is, is the, the Dome of the Rock, that, that Muslim mosque that is sitting there on that same piece of property, is that really the exact spot? And so they're even looking to say there could be a possibility that it wasn't actually there, but the space that is open is where that temple stood. And so they're looking at that. They're also... Uh, if you've heard anything about the red heifers, you may, you know, you may be doing some real crazy Jewish studying. And so you have to have a, a red heifer that is seen as, a, you know, just like any of those animals of sacrifice in the Old Testament, had to have a certain quality and caliber of them. And you need a red heifer and the ashes from that so that when you do a high priest ceremony, that he could be made clean so he can walk into the temple and within the altar to carry out those sacrifices. And so we see, you know, a rising of awareness where, you know, this, these Jewish people are trying to bring everything together, that they can have everything in place to, again, rebuild this temple and start their sacrificial system. Like, we see that now in our world, and we look at the Word of God, and we understand that there will be a rebuilding of this. And it has to be further, not just for the fulfillment of what Daniel said, or even what Paul says, but even Jesus says there has to be a temple because a sign unto the Jews in this seven-year period is going to be something called the abomination of desolation. And again, in the next couple chapters, we'll really pick apart what that means. But the Jews in this day that are living through the tribulation, this is going to be a sign unto them to flee to the mountains. And there's reasons for all of that. But there has to be a temple for the abomination of desolation because you can't have that any other place. And again, we'll cover that here in the next couple chapters. So carbo load, get ready for it. Now, the concern is as followers of Jesus, we could get really excited about the rebuilding of this temple because we understand it to fulfill prophecy. And, and yes, and we're gonna hold fast that God is gonna hold fast to his and fulfill his promises. And so we can get really excited about that. But even as we talked about last week, it needs to be, within a bittersweet understanding of it. See, it's, it's that. It's sweet because we understand the fulfillment of prophecy, that God is who he says he is, and he is coming, and he will bring an end to transgression, and he will bring in everlasting righteousness. But there also has to be a bitterness because we know what's gonna happen for that temple to be rebuilt and what that is a sign unto and what will happen in there with the abomination of desolation, what's gonna be going on in the world for that. And so sometimes we only focus on the sweet part of it. We get really excited about it. And I'm gonna try to present one more reason why we honestly need to have a little bit more bitterness when we see that. So when you think about as followers of Jesus, why we should never forget what was the temple used for? When we go back and we read the Old Testament, what was the purpose of this structure, the temple? It was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of sacrifice. And we as followers of Jesus understand the greatest place of sacrifice is no longer in a physical structure, but on the cross and in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the, the bitterness that we would feel and understand about the rebuilding of this temple is it's going to be built out of a rejection of the greatest sacrifice. That it is a sign and almost like an, an external uh, 
reality of the rejection of Jesus Christ. That they're gonna, no, we don't want Jesus, we don't follow him, we don't want the cross, we're not, we need the temple, and they're gonna, they're gonna sign any covenant that's gonna allow them to have that. And they're gonna lose their discernment to not even understand that that's the Antichrist that they are signing a covenant with because the temple. I mean, you can go back to the Gospels and look at you know, the religious leaders and their view of the temple and, and it just how esteemed they held that. Even Jesus said it's gonna be destroyed and not one stone is gonna be upon another and he's, he's prophesying about 70 AD when it was destroyed and they wanted to kill him for it. How could you speak against the temple? It was this, not just the center of their faith, but just the center of that whole culture and community. Again, I think that's one of the reasons why most, if not all, of the New Testament was written before 70 AD, because they're all Jewish. And if we were gonna talk about carrying out our faith, the greatest thing that you could say to a Jewish person in that day is the temple, the very place that you would go for the substitutionary atonement of sin, year by year, Hebrews would tell us, is to the temple. But you don't even have a temple, so how are you gonna have forgiveness of sin? That it is moved and it is not in the temple anymore. It was once for all with Christ on the cross. So yes, rebuilding the temple will fulfill prophecy, but it will also replace the true place of sacrifice and the person, Jesus Christ. Now we know as the church, we will not be living through this tribulation period. We don't have to understand, you know, for our own benefit of what the abomination of desolation is but let's just preach a little bit. It is Sunday. How quickly do we do the same thing as the Jews will? Where we reject the place of sacrifice and the person and we try to build our own little temples because we understand that Jesus took our place, you know, that substitutionary tone, he took our place and now we're just trying to return the favor. Lord, let me, let me replace something for you that you don't have to, you don't need to be the Lord of my life. You don't need to sit upon the throne of my heart. Let me replace you with something a little bit easier, a little more palpable for my life. You know, we read and we understand that it, Jesus says, if you wanna follow after me to pick up your cross and follow me, and it's like, how about something else? Something that's a little bit easier something still good. I'm not talking about like picking up our sin and trying to call sin righteousness and no, no, no. What, what if, just like the lesser version, like the Kmart blue light special version of the cross. How many times do we do that in our life? That we really don't want the fullness of the cross because when we stand before it, yes, there is grace and there is mercy, but we also have to understand the reason for it, one of the most bloodiest, excruciating, painful ways to die. And it was our sin that nailed him there. That we have to sit in the tension that every time we look upon a cross, we have to be reminded of our sin and our depravity and our continual failure to God. But at the same time, we stand before the cross and we understand his grace and his mercy. We understand that that was my place, but God loved me so much. The verse that we all have to memorize to get out of Sunday school, right? 
that God loved me so much that he gave me his son and he took that spot that was deserved for me. He took the punishment that was supposed to be mine and he gave me his righteousness. And because of my faith and my trust in him, God doesn't see me for my past sin and brokenness. He doesn't see the current reality of where I just fall short. He doesn't even hold, you know, like sometimes we just know when somebody like, I know you're gonna mess up. Like God is omniscient. He knows when I'm gonna sin. Like he's not shocked by it, he's not surprised by it. But understanding that that cross paid for my past, present, and future sin And so when God views me because of my faith in Christ, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. Why are we as the church so prone to want to find a substitute for that? We love the grace and the mercy of it. We love the sweetness of it. But we also have to let the bitterness of what that cross is hit us. That's what drives us to our knees in repentance. It's what drives us to continually shed off the old man and allow the new man to be renewed in us. It's the motivation in us to see others who are apart from Christ to be drawn near because we know the power of the blood of Jesus. We know the power of the cross in the empty grave. But how quickly do we want to build another place of sacrifice? Lord, I'll give you all of these things. Shouldn't that be enough? That's why obedience to Jesus is so difficult. And this is way of description, not prescription. So this is, here's a, here's a little transparent moment into the heart of your pastor and what God is doing in my life. This is the work of Christ for me. I struggle in obedience to Jesus, why? Because I'm not obeying Jesus for him. I'm obeying Jesus for me. It's my pride and my ego that gets in the way. It's who I wanna be seen by the outside world. I wanna be seen as this moral person that's highly involved in ministry, that's walking with the Lord, that has a lot of biblical knowledge, that treats his wife and his kids well. It's this ego that I want. I obey Jesus because of what I get out of it. That's what the Lord's been saying to me. And he said, if you will follow me, for me, that's where you'll find true freedom. And you struggle in your obedience because you're wasting it on your own desires. So many times we get so close and we miss it by so far. And that's the discernment that we're called to have in scripture. We think of discernment as understanding right and wrong. Discernment is understanding what is right to almost right. You know, it's kind of like when you go to get a yogurt out of the fridge and it's just, it's, it's almost past its time, you know, and you just, you're about three bites into it before you're really deciding if it's still good or not, or is that just me? Okay, that's just me, right? <laughs> I'm halfway through the Snickers bar before I'm tasting the rat poison and be like, that's not a peanut, you know? Discernment is understanding not just, you know, this drastically right, drastically wrong. It's understanding what is righteousness, and what's near and that counterfeit that I'm settling for. That's why I struggle in obedience. But if I will follow Christ with trust, faith, with I follow in obedience to him and for him, not for myself, that's where you find true freedom.
but it will not happen with a substitutionary sacrifice. It only happens at the foot of the cross. Now let's jump into Revelation 11. And so we have these two witnesses that in this seven year period in verse three, he kinda, verse two and three, he's gonna skim over this whole seven year period. And he starts with the second half first, and then he's gonna move to the first half. And so in the second half, we understand that um, it says, but do not measure the court outside of the temple, but leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And we understand and know that that is a fulfillment of Daniel 9, 26, that the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, shall destroy the city. And so, uh, again, God picks back up a Jewish calendar because he is picking back up the program of Israel and he says it's gonna happen for 42 months. He actually gives us two little timetables to, to put this together. And so 42 months, understanding that there's 360 days in a Jewish calendar. Each month had 30 days. So you can do the math, 42 months is three and a half years. And Daniel 9 tells us that the Antichrist will come and he will destroy the city, he will trample over that. You know, there's, there's a key thing then. So how does he sign a covenant of peace with the Jews for the first three and a half years and then break that covenant now attacking the Jews? Well, to be continued, Revelation 12 and 13. But there's reason for that. And so he's referencing the 42 months that the city's gonna be trampled. He's referencing the second half of tribulation. And then in the next verse, he goes, and I will grant authority to my witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, do the math, Jewish calendar. It's three and a half years. And so they are gonna prophesy and they're gonna be clothed in sackcloth, sackcloth and we'll talk about what that means. And so usually when we talk about the book of Revelation, what's the mark of the beast? Who's the Antichrist? And then who are the two witnesses? It's always kind of a fun little topic. And, and you can ask about 10 different Bible commentators or scholars, and you're probably going to get 10 different answers. And we're going to walk through more about um, who are they to be, what they are going to do, than really the identity of them but I'll add the 11th idea to it. So these two witnesses, so if you wanna turn to Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament, so if you get to Matthew, go one more page. And so go to Malachi for me. Malachi chapter four, you will understand this verse. Malachi chapter four, starting in verse five. This prophet is writing, he says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, of Yahweh, comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so what we have to understand is Jesus has two advents, right? Jesus came first, rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, and we, as the church, are waiting his second advent, the second coming of Christ. Well, if we look at his first advent, he had sent an Elijah before him to pave the way for the Lord, and his name was John the Baptist, right? And he was very effective, preaching repentance, dressed a little crazy, a little, little camel hair, you know. I was looking at my wardrobe this morning, I thought, do I go with the camel hair jacket, leather belts, you know? You know, kind of a weird dude, had some weird dietary things going on. 
You know, like I'm, I'm never sitting down to watch the game and think, you know what I need right now? Some honey-covered locust. You know, that sounds awesome. Like, like chicken wings? No, 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 locust, let's go. And so he's, a, he's kind of a weird dude, but he was preaching repentance and he was paving the way for the Lord. And so God sends a messenger, someone to pave the way for the Lord at his first advent. And at the second advent, he's going to do the same thing. That's these two witnesses, that they are going to come, they're going to prophesy, they're going to preach, they're going to be an example of repentance. That's what it means for them to be clothed in sackcloth. Again, a very Old Testament type of thing. If you were, again, outward expression of an inward reality, that would kind of help to know what's going on in each other's lives, right? You know, instead of as the church putting on the mask, what if we really put on sackcloth and ashes? And so you walked into church and people would know, like, they're in a time of struggle, they're in a time of pain. They're in a time of repentance. And so they're going to be clothed that way as an example of repentance, and they will be effective, just like John the Baptist was. The scores of people came out to see this crazy, wild, desert preacher named John the Baptist talking about the Messiah is coming. And so we have the same two advents of Christ, so we're going to have the same two messengers before them. And we know and understand, go back to like Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 to 3 and 11 to 14. We have the same description of these guys that Zechariah gives us that is also in John, here in Revelation, that John gives us. And he calls them these two olive trees, these two lampstands. And so the question really is, who are they? Some of the winning thoughts, right? Uh, Enoch and Elijah. We love that idea because they were taken up. They didn't die. They were taken up. And we really hold fast to that verse that man is destined to die once, but then explain the rapture. The whole church is not going to die. They're going to be raptured up. And so again, we try to hold that as like this unbreakable rule. God's just giving us the general principle, like unless rapture, we're all going to die. We even sang the song, when I die, Give me Jesus. If you didn't know that about yourself, I'm sorry to break the news to you. And we know what the death rate is here in Osage Beach and around the Lake of the Ozarks, right? 100%, and it hasn't changed. My son hates that. He goes, what about those of us that are alive? Just give it time. <laughs> and then you're gonna be one of the 100%, buddy, unless rapture happens. And so we look at Elijah, we look at Enoch, and we think that. And then we, you know, some people go to the Mount of Transfiguration. And we, then we have Moses, new character on the scene uh, in this idea. So we think maybe is it Moses and Elijah? Because those were the two guys at the Mount of Transfiguration. And we know back to the book of Jude, right? Who was wrestling with Satan for the body of Moses? One of the angels, because Satan, in some kind of understanding, knew that God has a plan for Moses. So, hey, if I can get his body, I can thwart the plan of God. And that's all that Satan is about. He is the adversary. He just wants to thwart any plan of God whatsoever. And we'll talk about that with the Jews in the tribulation. And so is, is that what's going on? But it can't be Moses and Elijah. Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're, they're in glorified bodies. And so if they're the two witnesses, what happens to them later? They're killed, which 1 Corinthians tells us that a glorified body cannot see corruption. So now we have to ask ourselves, which part of Scripture do we not want to hold to be true? 
Was, was Paul lying there in 1 Corinthians saying that a glorified body could see corruption then? Or is there something else going on? And so honestly, I fully believe that these are gonna be new guys on the scene. That, that is, it is not so much about their identity, but just as John the Baptist came in the same spirit of Elijah, and even Jesus said that, it was Elijah. It was, I, he, it was John the Baptist. He came in the spirit of Elijah. It's going to be the same way. So these are going to be two new guys on the scene. They're going to come. They're going to be prophesying. They're going to be preaching, be an example of repentance, and they're going to be effective. And again, going back to that Zechariah, they're called these two olive trees and these two lampstands, right? And you can see the correlation between it because an olive tree produces olives, right? Basic uh, tree knowledge there. And olives produce olive oil, right, basic cooking classes, and what do we put in lamps, at least in this culture? Olive oil. And we see this direct connection from the tree to the lamp, talking about oil, and oil in the Old Testament, and even in the New, has always been a sign of the Holy Spirit. And so these two witnesses, full of the Holy Spirit, will be in their ministry for the first half of the tribulation. And so we know the singular event to start the tribulation is going to be Antichrist signing the covenant with the Jews, covenant of peace. They'll rebuild the temple, start their sacrificial system. And we know from earlier parts of Revelation that the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to be sealed preaching the gospel. We know that tribulation is going to be a great moment of revival, people turning to the Lord in faith. And at the same time, from the beginning of tribulation, these two witnesses will be operating as well. That's why this is a parenthetical chapter. Like all these things have already been happening. John just finally gets to the time to talk about it. And, and, and then we see something kind of unique happen. Because it says that if anyone wants to come against them, what are they going to do? They're literally going to spit fire. No one's going to be able to harm them. They're going to be able to defend themselves very well. But then, a little turn of events, like a really good movie, they're killed. So, like, today, just, like, run out of fire breath? Was the Holy Spirit not enough for them? Like, what, what is going on? It's a, it, and what it says is that the beast that rises up out of the sea kills them. And, and we'll see who that is in Revelation 13. And there's a reason that it's only then at the halfway points that they are killed and only by that person that nobody else could. But how could that person, whoever that beast rising out of the sea is a reference to, why were they killed? And again, so we, when we get to 13, we'll circle back up and say, now you remember from 11, that's when, because all these events are happening, all parenthetical, all happening at the same time. It's kind of like right now in Cal Kids. I'm sure there's like babies crying. The preschool room is going crazy. We got second to, what is it? Kindergarten to second grade, third to fifth. It's all, there's probably some people upstairs. All these things are happening right now. But if I was writing it, let's, let's start here. And then we'll move to Cal Kids and talk about what's happening there. Then, then I would write about what's going on upstairs. But it's all happening at the same time. And so it's not the 144, then the two, and then... These are all happening right here. And so these two witnesses are going to be killed, and they're killed in Jerusalem. And, and you see that it doesn't just say it straight out, but it says, hey, the place where the Lord was crucified. 
But it tells us this great city, which is usually a reference to Babylon, so Jerusalem is going to become the headquarters of the Antichrist. And we'll talk about that. That'll tie us a little bit to what the abomination of desolation is. It says that the city is going to be called Sodom, so it's going to be speaking of its immorality. Hope you understand that picture, and if you need to go back to the Old Testament, there you go. It's also going to be called Egypt, and that speaks of its oppression and slavery. And so they're going to be killed, and they're going to let their bodies lay in the street for three and a half days. There was, a, there was one ministry, they wanted to send out Christmas cards, and, and like good Christians, what do we do with a Christmas card? We've got to find a Bible verse, right? Or then we're not saved if we don't put a Bible verse on our Christmas card. And somebody put this verse on here from Revelation 11, that those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents like the worst Bible verse to use for Christmas. We're talking about the death of the two witnesses of God and be like, from the pierces, you know, like horrible. <laughs> Hope you have a great holiday too. We're just killing two witnesses. We're gonna let their bodies lay in the street for three and a half days. Would you get me, you know? No. And so we see that they're gonna be killed and their bodies are gonna lay there for three and a half days and it's going to cause those that dwell on the earth to turn and wanna worship that beast that rises out of the sea, out of the bottomless pit that kills them, that that sign, they're gonna, it's literally gonna be Christmas day for them, knowing and understanding that those two witnesses are gonna be, what's it say, not a torture, but a torment. That as they're preaching and they're prophesying and they're exampling repentance, it's gonna be a torment to those who hear it. And torment always refers to a self-inflicted. And so when people hear truth and righteousness preached and they know that they are not a part of that, it's a torment to us. That's why we don't like to preach about it in the church, right? I don't want to be convicted of my sin. I don't want to feel bad for the things that I do. I just want to come into church. I want you to cover me in some honey. I just want the sweetness of Jesus and I want to walk out just as I always was. Except what's the problem? The cross is the place of sacrifice. Why? Because we are sinful, we are broken, we are depraved, and we need the sacrifice of Jesus. We need to understand the penalty of sin because if we don't have a proper view of sin, we do not have a proper view of salvation in Christ. And so we see these two, their bodies are gonna lay there and it'll be a public display but so will their resurrection and ascension. So when this breath of God hits them, this breath of life, it's not a revival. It's not that the Antichrist didn't know how to check a pulse. They will be killed, and they're gonna lay there. But then a breath of life from God is gonna resurrect them and then ascend them in the cloud. And it will be a great terror of those on the earth. And in the verse here, it says that, that they gave glory to God in heaven at the end of 13. It's not that they're gonna see this, be convict, convic, uh, convicted of their sin, have some conviction, and turn to the Lord in repentance and start worshiping him. It's kind of like when we were teenagers. And we would, we'd get caught doing something that we shouldn't have been doing. You know, That never happened to me, and I thought, you know what, I am in sin and I need to change my life. You know what my initial thought was? I need to get better at not getting caught. <laughs> be like, well, I saw this and this. It's like, okay, good. Now I know how you caught me and I'm gonna try to get better at it, right? I wanna be a good criminal. Some of you are like, man, what kind of teenager were you? <laughs> a lost one just like you. 
And so this response to them isn't a, yes, Lord, we're in sin. Thank you that we have an opportunity of salvation. It's going to be like, oh, man, we got caught, and this isn't good. And it's going to drive them further away. It's, it's going to be in a terror, and they're terrified. And those aren't a positive attributes or a positive response. And then we see the seventh angel blow his trumpet. Right? And so we know that that is marking the halfway of tribulation. The seventh trumpet contains the seven bowls, which we know if the seals were a fourth of God's wrath being poured out on earth. The trumpets were a third of God's wrath being poured out. And then here in the bowls, which you'll pick up here after, if, after we get through all the parenthetical, that's the fullness of God's wrath. And the response to it, because a lot of times we think of the seventh trumpet bringing the seven bowls of God's wrath. But what is the response that we see in heaven? That there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. And the 24 elders sit, who sit on their thrones before God. Remember, going clear back to the beginning of Revelation, that's a reference to us as the church. We fall down and we worship. And so the seventh trumpet, yes, is a trumpet of God's wrath to those who are destined for wrath. But thankfully, the word of God says multiple times that we, as the bride of Christ, are not destined for his wrath. It's also a trumpet of victory, knowing that God will bring an end. And that takes us again back to Daniel chapter nine that says that he will bring an end to sin and he will bring in everlasting righteousness. And that's the bittersweet that John was writing about when he ate that little scroll. The sweetness of yes, absolutely, the trumpet of victory will go and we know that God will reign forever. But it's also bitter because we know the events that'll take place. And so when he blows this trumpet and we see this response here at the end of chapter 11, it's like a good movie where you see the end scene of the movie first. And I love when movies do that, right? So you, you, you get in there, you grab your really expensive popcorn. We talked about that. You sit down and just like right out of the block, there's just this crazy climactic scene of just awesomeness, right? And then the screen goes black. They're like, that is the shortest movie I've ever seen. And then the words pop up three days before. And so now you have to follow and track how we got to that moment. So you're seeing key people and you're seeing the backstory and then you get to that moment. That's the same thing that's happening here. Because God's will is so sure that when that seventh trumpet goes out, we are absolutely sure of victory. And I really wanted to say just like the Kansas City Chiefs, but here I am. But that victory of Christ is absolutely sure. And so even as they blow that trumpet, knowing that the wrath of God through the seven bowls is going to be poured out, nothing is going to stop the will of God. And we worship him for that. And think about it. As we've walked through it, you know, these 24 elders, a reference to us as the church, and Revelation 4, we are seen praising God as our creator. And then if you remember in chapter five, when Jerron was preaching, they were praising God as the redeemer. And then here, what do we see? The emphasis is on Jesus as our conqueror and our king. It's all of scripture summed up right there. From, from Genesis, from the very beginning, that God is our creator. 
and we worship him because of that. And all through the Old Testament is the story of redemption after story of redemption, all of those being a type of Christ. So you can, you can study and, and read Moses between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army being redeemed out of Egypt, story of redemption. Rahab, hiding the spies, story of redemption. Ruth and Boaz, and he's a kinsman redeemer, story of redemption. David, falling to sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, story of redemption. And so all through the Old Testament, we are seeing God as our redeemer, and it comes ultimately here at the cross, where God absolutely conquers sin, and then we will see it again here in Revelation 11 that he actually conquers sin. And so God is our conqueror and our king. And then in the closing part of, of the worship that you hear, what do we see? God's temple in heaven, it was opened a second time. Where was the first time the temple was open and the ark was viewed? When the veil was torn at the cross. And when this trumpet of victory is sounded, the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. A vision of the ark of the covenant, which we see two aspects of God. One, he is faithful to his promise. If you study Hebrews, we understand that the, in the Old Testament that the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, it was needed for that sacrificial system. The only part that they missed is they missed the lawgiver, the heart of God, and they were only following after the routines and the traditions of it. But that priest would go in one day a year on Yom Kippur, which is coming up, on that day of atonement, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sins. But they would have to do that year after year after year, bull after bull after bull. You'd have to bring goat and lamb after year after year. But then Hebrews tells us that Jesus, going back to the ultimate place of sacrifice, was the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And so when we see that mercy seat, we know, hey, we don't have to go round up our livestock anymore. We remember the ultimate mercy seat the cross. And so we understand and know that God is faithful to his promises, that by the blood of Jesus, our sin is forgiven. And by the blood of Jesus and the resurrection, we have new life in him. And at the same time, God is present in his mercy. And so we are called, you know, in Acts 1-8, what does it say? That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses and Jerusalem, so city center, Judea, Samaria, the outer regions, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Just as these two witnesses are gonna be preaching and prophesying that they're gonna be effective in ministry, exampling repentance. Yes, we as the church will not live through the tribulation, but we absolutely live in persecution. Different source of trouble. Persecution, the enemy, Satan want nothing more to steal, kill, and destroy our lives as followers of Jesus. The wrath of God, hence the last two words, of God. That's different, the tribulation. And so even we, as the church, are called to be witnesses. And we see a very similar ministry that they will have that we have today. 
that we are called to be witnesses. And we have to understand, a witness is someone, is about who you are. So as a follower of Jesus, all of us are witnesses for Jesus. The question is, are we a good witness for Jesus? Paul would say it this way, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5, towards the end, we're called ambassadors for Christ. So think of like a company, let's go with Nike, it's easy to understand, and they will partner with certain athletes that they want that person to be the image of their brand. And what I love is every time one of those superstar athletes falls and does something stupid and gets in trouble or gets kicked out or arrested, what do they do? They kick them right off. They're like, nope, we don't want that kind of behavior associated with our brand. See, we're called to be ambassadors of Christ. We're called to be witnesses of Christ. That's who we are. Does our behavior reflect the brand of Jesus? Would the world look at us and see Christ in us and through us? But we have to understand a witness is who we are. Giving testimony is what a witness does. And they are only killed when they are finished giving their testimony. And we do not finish giving our testimony until either we die or God takes us up. And so we, as witnesses of Jesus, as his ambassadors, should continue to give testimony to his grace, his mercy, his love, his truth, his righteousness, not just the sweetness, but also the bitterness, not just his promises, but also the prophecies that will come about because it is the will of God. And a testimony isn't just what we say, right? We, we all know followers of Jesus that love just to talk, 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 and they're gonna, they're gonna herald the righteousness and hellfire and brimstone, and, but then the behavior of their lives is very different from it. And at the same time, there's some of us, we fall into the trap that we just need to serve, right? We need to feed the hungry, the poor. We need to clothe the naked. We need to do all these things in the name of Christ, absolutely. But it's also seen in what we say. And so that to be a witness of Christ, to give testimony is not just in what we say, but it's also in what we do. It's not just in what we do, but it's also in what we say. Because think about it, like, what would you call a runner that doesn't run? What would you call a football player that doesn't play football? What would you call a singer that doesn't sing? Pastor, that's what you'd say. <laughs> they would be an imitation. They would be a fake. They would be a fraud. Because a singer that doesn't sing is silent. A runner that doesn't run is ineffective. A witness that doesn't speak of the gospel is ineffective. And a witness that doesn't live out the gospel is ineffective. It's not one or the other, but beautifully God has intertwined these, that our lives are to be lived out for the sake of the gospel in what we say and in what we do, because we are redeemed and we are called ambassadors. And think about it, what, what Paul says is we are given the ministry of reconciliation. What do we praise God for? We talked about it in Revelation 5, as a redeemer, meaning that he, he is doing a work on earth and through his Holy Spirit. He is doing a work. And so beautifully, we love the grace 
and the love of God that we get a seat at his table, but also we get a spot on his team that he invites us into what he is doing. How glorious is it that he gets to use us to continue the ministry of redemption that people are getting pulled out of the darkness and into light. That we are given that ministry that those who are far off from Christ get to be reconciled back to him. That's what it means to be a witness for Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to open and in freedom and without fear, dig deep into your word. And I pray that it would not just be an intellectual filling of our brains, but a spiritual filling of our hearts. And I pray that you would find us, your church, your body, the bride of Christ here that we call Calvary Chapel, I pray that you would find us faithful, fruitful, and fulfilling the call that you have upon our lives not just to be witnesses in what we say, not to be just witnesses in what we do, but holistically living out the gospel in every aspect of our life because we know that your blood on that cross, we know the new life out of the grave as a first fruits unto us transforms and changes every aspect of our life. And so I pray, Lord, that every aspect of our lives would be lived out in reflection of your grace, your love, your mercy, and your truth. Give us that kind of faith. We pray all of this, and everybody said? Amen. As we we close, if you want prayer, there's a couple different ways. First, if you're on campus, there's a prayer team in the back of the sanctuary in the corner, ready and willing to pray with you and for you. And if you're online, or if you need prayer throughout the week, here's a text prompt. You could send the word prayer to that number and set up a conversation with us. And we'll start uh, praying for you about whatever's going on in your life. And so we want to make those available to you. If you're interested in what does it mean to follow Jesus? Maybe you've never put your faith and your trust in him. Here's another text prompt for you. Just text the word begin to the same number. And we want to provide resources for you, knowing that no matter where you're at, what you've done and what you've been through, Jesus wants a relationship with you. And if you're interested in continuing the conversation from today's message, I encourage you to check out The Breakdown. It's a podcast where we break down this week's message. You can find it on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, podcast, or any other podcasting platform. And as always, just want to invite you next week as we continue our study in the letter from Patmos. Have a great week.